Hello film and music fans, Edith here with you uh, with another episode of Soundtracking, my weekly podcast where I talk about film and music. Um, I've got to make a quick apology for the slight tardiness of this week's episode. Various reasons for that, one of them being that I was at all points east. I was working, but I was also taking full advantage of watching some incredible music over the weekend. Uh, the reason I was there is because I do a podcast with BMW called Play Next. And what it is, it's about celebrating new music. And it's been really wonderful to be part of this podcast because we really try and do our best to support both up and coming artists, but also have really nice in-depth conversations with existing people and with people kind of within the industry that we think have got something interesting to talk about. So we've had loads of great guests on this season, uh, five episodes there are, including the likes of Self Esteem, Muramasa. We had Emily Evis on as well, post-Glastonbury, which was really interesting, and wonderful musicians and artists. So I was there because we have a stage at All Points East, so it was great to give some of the artists an opportunity to get out there and play live. And there were so many highlights over the weekend. Uh, Willow Kane, uh, Atawalpa, uh, the dinner party. I mean, it was just so good. There were so many great artists. So uh, check out socials for loads of links to some of the artists, but also if you get the chance, please do search for Play Next wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I was also lucky enough to watch some pretty great live music, uh, Self-Esteem being one of them. Also, Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds I watched last night. Warren Ellis, of course, who's featured on this. Carly Paradi, an amazing composer, who's playing piano for Nick at the minute as well. Uh, and I have put in the request to get Nick and Warren back, uh, well, Warren back on the show, but Nick to welcome him on the show. How could that be? dream come true. I also watched The Smile Band, which of course is Tom York and Johnny Greenwood's new band and plucked up the courage to go and say hi to Johnny backstage. And he was so lovely and generous and was like, I love talking to you in the podcast. So thank you very much for that. Anyway, I digress and I could go on and on and on and on, but I won't because I'm going to talk about this week's episode. Now, as regular listeners to this podcast, Soundtracking, you know that I love it when we get to speak to directors and their composers at the same time. And that's what we're going to do today with the fabulous Emma, Holly Jones and Amelia Warner. Now, Emma enlisted Amelia for her debut feature film, Mr. Malcolm's List, which is out in cinemas now. It is a period rom-com about two friends who plot revenge on the eponymous suitor for rejecting one of them as a bride. It is, as I said, out in cinemas now, so do get along to see it if you like. Speaking of which, we are absolutely thrilled to continue our partnership with VIEW, particularly as we prepare for National Cinema Day on Saturday, the 3rd of September. As you might be aware, we kind of like to celebrate the big screen on this podcast. Nothing quite like the escapism and the inspiration that it gives us. Well, how do you fancy going along and watch some great stories on the big screen for just £3 a ticket? Could be Mr Malcolm's List or it could be one of the big blockbusters uh, from the year, Top Gun, Maverick or Spider-Man, No Way Home. Or how's about getting the chance, maybe for the first time, to experience some absolute classics. E.T., Casino Royale, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan all on the big screen. Celebrate National Cinema Day at View with the ultimate seat sound and screen at just £3 plus 90 pence booking fee. To book now, head to your nearest View venue or visit myview.com. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, before we hear from Emma and Amelia, just quickly wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast which focuses on subject close to my heart. It's called, great name by the way, Glittering 
a turd. It's presented by Chris Halenga, and you might know Chris from her breast cancer charity, Copperfield. Fantastic charity. You might have read a book, same title, Glittering a Turd. On the show, Chris and her guests discuss the hard times they've been through and how they overcame them. And we all know that life can be a turd sometimes, but you can always roll that turd in glitter. The idea is to make you feel better about, well, whatever you're facing in life, with guests including Giovanna Fletcher, Sophia Lisbexter, Vicky Patterson, Nadia Hussain, David Gandhi, and so many more. Glittering a Tart is all about positive vibes and it's out now. So go and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Right then, finally on to Emma and Amelia. And we'll begin with Amelia's very first cue from Mr. Malcolm's List, Overture. This is so nice because we feel I feel like we I've had actually be, had the luxury of having a few episodes recently where I've had this wonderful conversation with you know the creative team director and composer it's been so nice and it's great to continue that with this god this beautiful film you guys have made I laughed so much I just I loved it I just thought it was so great and and that's down to so many things it's that kind of thing I think when all the pieces of the puzzle are right it just works Emma, if you don't mind me starting with you, just how you came to be involved with it and what it was about, you know, about this this story and these characters that, yeah, got your attention. Yeah, so it was, it's been like a full seven-year journey for me. Whoa. So, yeah, it's like Woo. I'm right at the end now, which <laughs> is, which is a good feeling. But no, I, I was obviously just a struggling filmmaker I don't know if I can really call myself a filmmaker seven years ago you know I was just very much in that position of trying to find get my career off the ground trying to find something trying to find that job that thing and you know I heard the script actually on a podcast for the first time it was on the Blacklist Table Reads podcast so I was actually driving my car and I heard it which is a really wonderful way to find a piece of material because you kind of your imagination runs wild as you're listening to it and I was very much hooked from moment one. To me, it felt like the mashup between period drama and a 90s rom-com. And, you know, I was very much on a mission to bring back the 90s rom-com. I've always said I wanted to be the female Richard Curtis. So that was really what drew me to the piece. And, you know, that sort of kicked off the whole journey. And then, you know, the short film happened and then the feature happened. And the short was massively a a way to um you know try as pr- massive proof of concept basically to try and use you know that to raise the money to make the big one what about when it came to music though with this because there is a period you know and 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 just in terms of what you wanted it to to sound like and then you know working and approaching millie about doing this well i think 
you know, I thought obviously casting the movies where we cast it, you know, there was so much I was doing on a writing level to really bring this to 2022 audience today. Yeah. And music though, I was adamant had to remain a little bit classically inspired because I felt that this cast particularly really deserved for me, not only in the cinematography, but and in the music and the sound design and everything to really create frames and an experience that felt as timeless as some of the greats. I didn't want to do anything too contemporary mm -hmm. in the craft of the film to almost allow like Chopin's Malcolm really to sink into 1818. So when me and Millie first met, Millie was... We have a lot of mutual friends, funnily enough. So it was really nice when we first met because it kind of felt very meant to be. But uh, I, my music supervisor, Ian Neal, recommended her as well as I think one of the company, Cutting Edge, that we were one of the companies we were working with. And we went for a long walk in Hyde Park. And I think one of the things we really connected over was sort of that classic inspiration, but then also finding those contemporary twists within mm -hmm. that. And, you know, I said flat out, I have no idea how one does that, but she really seemed to understand what I was thinking. And mm -hmm. I mean, delivered on it tenfold. It's beautiful. It's so gorgeous. And it's it's almost like it feels like there's a kind of there's almost a heartbeat to the film musically that then just of just branches out and expands and kind of grows, but also kind of kind of comes back into sort of smaller moments when it's needed. So it's got this beautiful breath to it almost in a way. Where did you start with how and what you wanted it to sound like for you, Millie? Um, I think that uh I mean, when I met Emma and we, we had this great chat and this lovely walk, and I think that I was quite honest about the fact that I'm not classically trained. So in some ways, I'm incapable of doing a, a really traditional kind of Regency score that's going to sound like it existed exactly in that time and that would be accurate historically. And so I think that in a way that ended up being a bit of a strength because it meant that I could do an imagining of it without really rigid um, and strict about certain rules but but I agreed with Emma and I wanted it to feel really grounded in something traditional and something classic and I wanted something that just yeah that just felt classic that felt like the films that we all love and that we watch like a hundred times and they have those themes and those familiar hooks um, and I think that this where I started was with trying to write a love theme because I felt that that was going to be the key really to the whole thing. So that was the first thing was writing that theme. And also they were shooting the ball, the masquerade ball quite, and they and, and Emma was really keen to have that piece so that they could play it on the day. And so the actors could hear it, which I really loved that idea. And so I wrote that before they started shooting so that, so that they could have that on the day. And, um, and it was really nice actually, I think to have that theme and to know, okay, this is going to be like the, 
the kind of core of this of this score and then the rest of it all came out you know after I saw the film such a nice way of thinking about it of you know in terms of it and it's such a healthy thing I think for people to hear about you know you don't have to be classically trained to have an imagination and be creative when it comes to music and this is a great example of what you can create kind of with a beautiful story and beautiful performances and beautiful talent as a composer and because it does kind of almost in a weird way not having those constraints of knowing what that world is of being able to step outside of those boundaries and step outside of the constraints of that in a way yeah I think because you you can break the rules without because you don't know the rules so it's yeah. how to do things that you know probably shouldn't really you know be done or wouldn't wouldn't be the right work the right way of doing it um but I don't know that I'm doing anything particularly unusual it's just and it's just instinctual I always thought yeah not not having that classical training would, would really hold me back but I've actually, all of the things I've done have been period films, weirdly. So it's a funny, it is a funny thing. Do you start on a, with this, did you start on a specific instrument? Um, yeah, I wrote the love theme on the piano because it just felt like it needed a piano theme, you know. For the rest of the score, I used lots and lots of woodwind. Um, and that became the other, other side of the score, the kind of mischievous, fun, witty, frilly, um, particularly Julia Thistlewaite's character and her physicality. And when I saw her moving around and the way her head kind of moved, and I just thought, thought, kind of started to hear these flutes and these trills and these fun ideas.
the yeah, the love theme was was all on the piano and and I really like that it it works just really simply on the piano and then it also we could build it into something that felt much bigger and more orchestral and more sweeping like you said it kind of just grew with the film yeah the casting in this is phenomenal I mean it's just so great and also it feels like everyone's kind of getting a chance to do something different as well that we've not seen them do you know and that's that's kind of I mean Shoppy's amazing he's incredible and I'm I, I got the chance to meet him, I think it was a couple of years ago now when he was a an EE rising star for BAFTA. And it was just, I was kind of like, I was felt like I was hypnotized by him because he has this presence about him. He's phenomenal. And Frida as well, I just feel like we've not seen her in a role like this. And I mean, don't get me started on Zawi. It's just like, oh, she's brilliant. And even like Oliver Jackson as well. It's kind of like, you know, all these it feels like all these people that we know and we've seen on screen, but this film is and these roles are like. Oh my God, you can do that as well. Do you mind talking a little bit about casting? Because then I want to also talk about how the performances led on to themes and, and yeah. musicality as well. Yeah, totally. It's funny, something Millie just said about how like you can use like great classic things to inspire the film and break the rules and you don't need these training. Like that was genuinely the approach to, I think, the entire movie going, you know, all the way back to the casting at the beginning because you know, whether it's production design or costume design or the rules of the time or being historically accurate, I think I realized as a director, I can pull inspiration from anywhere and then just throw everything out the window and make decisions and rules uh, of the Malcolm's world for us as a body of people working within it. And I think when you look at the cast, obviously we did that straight away by really challenging the way these sorts of films are cast and made and actually yeah. they are you know this is actually a more I think accurate portrayal of what England actually looked like I think the genre has been whitewashed and it you know it takes two minutes on Google to realize there's enough information out there to say actually England didn't look this way you know maybe they weren't good lords and ladies and kings and queens but my god isn't it fun to open these characters up to this fresh, wonderful group of talent who've never got to stretch these muscles, who, as you say, bring something to this that maybe we haven't seen them do before. That is a really joyful, exciting thing to watch because, you know, watching Chopé walk onto set in a top hat on a horse for the first time, the entire crew was literally swooning. <laughs> you know, it's a magical thing. Yeah. You know, the men too, they're like, I, the amount of, Grown ass Irish men who kept coming up to me going, That boy is something. And I was like, I know. You know, it was totally hypnotizing. Yeah. But also talking about Ollie and Theo for a second. I've known Ollie for uh since I was a teenager. Wow. And he's been playing, you know, very serious, dark, murder-driven roles as of late. But when you know Ollie, you know how funny he is. So it was such a joy to be able to create a space for this cast. And, you know, same with Theo. He's a genuinely hilarious human being. Mm. Little less PG in real life, but, you know, like, you know, <laughs> super naughty and super fun. And it was a really good, fun, creative space for them to come and improv. We did a whole rehearsal week where they improv, they built their chemistry, they added jokes, we developed the scripts. And then obviously talking about Zowie, who came in, by the way, 
huge testament to her two weeks before we started shooting because another actress dropped out and no way. just smashed it. Like, oh my god, I can't I, imagine anyone else in that role. No, it was really, really quite remarkable. It was like the biggest silver lining of the whole journey for me. Because you can imagine when you lose that to two weeks before you start shooting in the middle of a pandemic and there's quarantine rules and God knows what's going on. I was really, really scared. And when I met her, she pitched me in the Bridget Jones of 1818 and she saw the character in a different way. And we literally were still rewriting and changing things up until the last week with her because it was all such a, you know, run and gun situation. But she brought something really, really special to this film. There's so many like spin-off films I want from all the characters, like <laughs> Divian Ladwise. Well, I want like a John spin-off film. I want a Gertie spin-off film. I want like they're just like every that's what's brilliant, I think, is about is the way that you've that you've you've made this film is that we care about all these characters and we're interested in them all. And you know, even if they're a smaller role sort of thing, you just like, oh, I wanna I wanna see more of them. I wanna I wanna know more about them as well. And the music as well just really gives it gives us more about the characters, I think, as well, you know, in terms of that brilliant way that when you when you get that script and you're able to connect with the music through it, you've you've done that in terms of they might not have loads to say, but I think through the way that you've scored them in a way, they kind of it tells us loads about those characters as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean the script was you know, I really enjoyed the script. And then but then it was a completely different thing when I saw the film and what Emma had done with it and the yeah. performances that she had got got from the actors and the casting and how clever it was. It just brought the whole thing to life in this really exciting way. And so once I saw it and saw all the, the chemistry and the fun and the jokes, it was just really exciting. And I think the biggest, I guess the biggest um, challenge was not getting in the way of that, rhythm and that energy because they did have such great energy there's a lot of dialogue there's lots of jokes it's subtle it's funny and it was trying to highlight that and kind of season it and just move you know pop in and out without you know being all over the place and without stepping on all of that um so that was I found that almost my biggest challenge but then there were just so many other lovely things that came out that I maybe missed in the script or didn't necessarily seem so apparent, which was, you know, the friendship between Julia and Selena. In the script, it was quite easy to just see it as a transactional thing and just dismiss this, mm. you know, relationship as, but in the movie, you really believe that the, there was this really deep love for one another, which, which added a really important layer to it all because it just made the stakes so much higher. And it made, you couldn't just dismiss Julia as, some heartless silly frivolous person because actually she you know she had this really special friendship with somebody who in a way you know she probably you wouldn't imagine that she would have been friends with when I saw the film again that was another layer that I thought I really want to focus on their friendship and making sure we have a really special cue and a special sound for their their love and their friendship so that so that it just made it all mean more and you really care about everybody.
yeah and you kind of get the strength of that and the, the sort of different variants of that as well and that kind of culmination of that point where you know she sat on the stair and she's kind of you can see the heartbreak and yeah. watch and the realization of what's just happened yeah that's really like kind of because it is it, that's a clever thing to do as well is that thing of kind of we feel kind of we're on a lovely journey and it's funny and stuff and then and then you're kind of like whoo kind of like it's like a sucker punch almost at that point yeah. whoa yeah it's really sad and you really feel for her even though it's all of her own making and all of the you know she's she's created this chaos but in that moment you are just you just feel so broken for her did you have to um consider those kind of like that there's like that moment where they're at the I'm really bad with my again I'm not classically trained and no you know I'm not there with oh oh yeah the fourth concerto and all that nonsense nothing oh straight over but Figaro I did recognize um I think am I right <laughs> um, the opera you've got to navigate that haven't you because you've got to because that's that's kind of real and existing and so you've got to put a sandwich it I guess you know you kind of got, it's so how's that in terms of when you're on the score on both sides of that, of, of, of the textures working, I guess? I suppose the, the most important thing was we ended up reorchestrating the pieces for the for the ball. So there's the, the quadrille, there's the dance for, um, for Julia and Henry, and then there's the um, serenade, the, the mask, I can't remember what it's called now, um, serenade, I think. And I think that Emma felt that actually reorchestrating them almost in more of a style of the score and in a way that felt more within the film, the sound of the film. So that was something that we did. But the rest of it, I guess it didn't interact too much, the, mm. the rest of the score, apart from the opera, which is this great moment because it's kind of the opening of the film and everyone knows that piece. And I think it was really smart picking that you know piece because it, it's instantly recognisable and... And, and and it just kind of gets you straight into that scene in a really immediate way. Ian Neal, who was a music supervisor, who was incredible, like, as Millie said, like, she wrote us this love theme really early on. So we had this really wonderful, like, reference to sort of a very, you know, the, th the main theme of the film. And then he was really involved. I mean, we were, I mean the amount of emails between you, me and Ian just going back and forth on, like, what works from a, you know, a, an original music level and, and, a, and a school level so it was a very considered process I think yeah. between the three of us to find things that we were all happy with mm. you know that we felt could could blend nicely yeah it's lovely when you're talking about the kind of characters as well there's that I was just reading back on my notes because that kind of thing whilst I'm watching of trying to in the dark like write notes that I can never read my writing properly and um, but I, I just wrote down simplicity more delicate cue when we see Frida Pinto for the first time and that cue just tells us so much about her personality and her being and existence that's a beautiful cue oh thank you yeah I really love that cue it's really simple and really you know and it, it doesn't reprieve or anything it's just in that moment but I think you're right it just has this it hopefully captures her kind of spirit and who she is and where she is in life and um yeah and it felt it felt really lovely mm.
set at all? You you talk, you know, in terms of because you had to provide that kind of music prior to starting, but but seeing what Ed, Ed, Emma had kind of, you know, when you see the difference between that script and the film, it's always an interesting journey, you know, through the yeah. the editing process and also just playing with your cast and allowing them Emma that freedom to like you say like play with those characters as well. But did you go on set much at all? No, I didn't because it was right in the middle of um, COVID. Like Bloody they shot COVID. so many models. <laughs> I mean, I can't, to be honest, I cannot believe that you guys managed to do it. You know, I, I'm just shocked that you actually threw it, got to the end, didn't get shut down um, because it's, just, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary that you managed to do it in that time. Um, but no, there was definitely no, um, no set visits. And they were, I wish you were there. I know, I would have loved that. It would have been great. But the performances from watching what Emma had had kind of cut and and shot were important for you in terms of kind of really understanding the performance of those characters. Yeah, they were. It was you know it was just really inspiring because mm. I felt like there was there was what was on the page and then what they and every single person elevated it like just made more of it um, created humour where there really on the page wasn't there and created. Um, really emotional moments and connection and all of these things that I'd kind of missed, you know, were just mm. really brought out. So so watching it, I just suddenly was like, oh my God, there's this and there's this and there's these people and there's that going on. And so it was just really inspiring when I saw it. I love that little video that you put up of just you playing the theme on the piano as well. That's like, <laughs> got to release that as a single or something. That's just like, that's, um, I mean, I know that's like, it is kind of out there anyway, but like, it's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful piece. And just, I think that's what I meant about the kind of heartbeat of it in a way, in terms of an interest in that. Yeah. What kind of grows out of that as well. Sorry. I was going to say, I was so obsessed with that piece. I got married <laughs> two months ago and I walked down the aisle to it. No, that's, a, oh my God, I'm going to cry. That's amazing. <gasps> it was so yeah. amazing. Like it was one of the best moments I think, of my musical life seeing that it was so amazing and she had timed the walk so perfectly to the music that it was like honestly it was proper yeah goosebumps and shivers and it was it was magical I might have directed my own wedding (laughs) (laughs) it was perfect like it was there were like doors opening on the heart and I mean honestly I was just like (gasps) did you know I knew she was, yeah, I knew she was using it and was so honoured and moved and, you know, it was just incredible. And then, but I didn't expect that it was just, be, the whole thing was just so beautiful the way it was done. Oh my, uh, I think that got, is... Chopin got teary, wow. Chopin caught eyes with my now husband, Franklin, and was like, Ooh. like Franklin was like, they were looking, because there's only so few people who knew, like, what this piece meant, but it is stunning like I had to play we played it on the sound system uh for my family before because I knew it was going to be it's such a tearjerker it just is and I'm just my mum was I just remember my mum looking to me I was playing it to her in the afternoon she was like oh god Emma just stormed out of the room she was like you're gonna kill everyone with this and I was like it's just a little fun fact like that I love that it's really special it's so funny you're talking about going back to what you said at start about 90s rom-coms I don't know if you it's like sad admission here but like when you would watch those films and you would kind of like oh imagine love and relationships like that and 
the soundtracks to it and it was kind of I guess it's that that's the whole point of rom-coms is that kind of like oh I want to be in love like that I want to you know that kind of whole thing sort of thing and there are pieces of music that absolutely emulate that and I think that that's for me where it's got it's got such a beautiful romanticism to it kind of yeah fight for that love it's gonna happen you know that's it's got such a beauty to it Oh, it was honestly when we were when we were shooting the ball like you know it's a wonderful thing we rigged the room with speakers because I was you know one of the reasons we wrote it so in advance was because I always had in my head that there was going to be parts in the film you mentioned the other one where Zowie uh, Julia gets hurt where we switch from what you hear in the room and the score becomes sort of like the inner monologue of the characters yeah so when Shop and Frida were filming that scene like also you don't have to record the sound in the dance so we were just booming like this music through the space and you know and obviously the waltz and switching between it and the sound guy Hugh Fox was incredible and we had so much fun because it was low level five lockdown COVID so most people dancing uh in the scene had been in a room or got to dance in over a year so the energy on that day was pretty phenomenal. And, you know, I remember watching the monitor and getting teary for the first time because, and even the cameraman, like he's dancing with the music because everyone could hear it. Mm. So it was a really, really special day. And then in the breaks, I'd play 80s music to keep everyone's energy up because we <laughs> shot it for three days. <laughs> Give me some of those tunes. I need some of those tunes. What tunes are we talking about? I I have a video of definitely a Madonna Vogue and I have a video of my phone of I think ABBA, one of the ABBA songs of all. It's amazing. I want to put it out when the film's out because I've got this incredible video of the entire cast dancing to 80s music in the yes. ballroom in their costumes. It's brilliant. Oh, I love that. I, it is. I get that thing of kind of the last thing that I did before lockdown was go to someone's birthday party and dance like for about eight hours solid on a lit up dance floor and then the first thing I did weirdly was that person's wife's birthday and did the same thing there is something about dancing and music and oh my god it was amazing that oh you have to release that video for sure Emma that would be amazing that'd be great I will I hope you accept yourself as a filmmaker now by the way I think I think I might you should have to because you've done a beautiful job you really have is it what you imagined the experience would be yeah, I mean, obviously it's no, been... Minus the COVID. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know what, it's been it's been such a long journey, but I have learned so much and I have challenged myself to the absolute limit of my ability. And, and when I finished the movie, and, and Millie knows so much about this because she's so involved with me at the end of the, you know, the end of the project and the end of post. But when I finished the cut, I was very much like, you know what, I like it. And that was my resounding feeling. And I was like, and that's enough. It's such a wonderful feeling to finish something of this scale and struggle and get to the other side and go, you know what, it's me on a plate. And I, I'm content no matter what happens now. And I'm just excited for the next one, you know. To be a first-time director and to actually be able to say after your first film, like, I like it. I mean, that's a sh- that, that's the win. That really is. Because yeah. so many people end up not feeling that way. And it's so sad because they've had to make so many compromises or the film's been diluted through the process. And, and then they don't even recognise the film that they tried to make. Whereas I feel like you were so true to your vision. And, you know, and it's really paid off. Yeah, you should feel really proud that you've been able to do that because... 
like from my experience, even doing this podcast, you can kind of, you know, you get a lot of kind of people sort of off the record sort of thing. You know, it's not the film that I wanted to make. It's not, I wasn't allowed to make the film that I wanted to make. And it's wonderful to hear that you, yeah, that that's yeah, how you I, feel. That's so great. I think I'm frighteningly stubborn. So I really thought, <laughs> you know, and I think even everyone who worked with me was like, oh God, like, I don't know how we're going to beat her on this one. But, you know, I think with everyone, I, I just, I don't know. I think, you know, I think also producing the movie and it starting as an independent film and then coming this far, it does allow you to have, mm. as a producer, a lot more creative control yeah. um, than maybe I ever will again. So, you know, I think I have to count my lucky stars for that. Yeah, and I'll start as you mean to continue for sure, definitely. Do you know what's next? No, but I have been reading a lot. I have one thing I really want to do, but it's not it's not official or anything. Mm-hmm. But one is a contemporary rom-com script that I love. And then just there's a lot of ideas facing around. You know, I just, I've only in the last couple of weeks been able to really stop mountains and really start to think about yeah the, the next thing but all I know is I took I was like I got married obviously and I was like I'm gonna take a month off and I'm already bored so <laughs> I'm like okay good I've got to find something soon I thought I'd take the whole summer and like be lazy and I was like within two weeks I was itching to figure out well I was about to say like are we in your honeymoon right now I'm like please don't let us have interrupted your honeymoon um, no 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 like the, it's, so I got was it I got married on June 11th and then the US release was like two weeks later so I actually couldn't have a honeymoon because I had to go to the US release so I haven't had one yet you must be happy with the response it's had out in the states yeah I mean obviously I think I it was, it's very funny I was like my now husband Franklin like don't read you know don't read reviews like never get into that bubble and I was like yeah okay I won't and then people kept asking me that they're good I was like I'm gonna read them because they're good (laughs) and so I read a bunch and he was like you idiot now when this doesn't happen in the future you're gonna be so depressed he was like never get in the habit of reading reviews but I read them all so you know um it was Honestly, that was what I was not expecting. I say like, oh, you finished the film and I like it. I knew things about it. I knew the soundtrack and I knew the score was impeccable. People were going to love that. I knew, you know, the costumes were incredible. I And that's all Pam Down who worked on that. But I, and I knew that I, I, I loved the movie, but I mm. never, ever expected it to be. I actually genuinely thought, I wonder if men will like this movie. Like that, you know, I made such a, it's true to myself, like feminist rom-com. And I think that was the nicest surprise to have like, you know, older male critics who've been doing this for 30 years, like go, I don't like these sort of films, but it's charmed me. And I was like, that was the most surprising thing. I really didn't think that was going to happen. So yeah. I can I can be more excited really. And I just hope people continue to find it and see it and enjoy it. You know, I think hopefully it's got some legs. I really think it's feel good and, you know, for the first time in a long time, I haven't watched it a million times in the last month and I already miss it a little bit. So I might have to watch it again soon. Yeah, yeah if you've charmed the grumpy old gets, you know you've done really well. No, I was like, not all of them. Go read the IMD, IMD, IMDb, IMDb reviews are genuinely petrifying. But I think, like, we all knew that anything that's not, 
you know, verified or, or whatever the process is. Like, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, the racists did come out and storm on IMDb. So mm-hmm. they're quite frightening. But apart yeah. from that, yeah, it's been pretty <laughs> damn positive. Um, Millie, I hope we get to see this live as well, because you've got to do a concert. You've got to, especially over the last Hell couple yeah. of films as well, you've got to just do a concert of you with the piano and you have to, because there's just some such a beautiful collection of work there now. Oh, thanks. Can I direct it? Yes. <laughs> I'll introduce it. Okay. Yeah, done. <laughs> do you know what's I, next for you, Millie? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I've just started um, working on it and it's, um, yeah, it's great, but I, I'm not right. allowed to say it. Yeah, okay. It's, uh, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to say in a couple of weeks. Fab. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I mean, I just, I want to watch it again as well. Like you say, it's got, when you know a film makes you feel a certain way, makes you feel kind of just like happy and positive. It's like, oh yeah, I know what I'm going to watch again. So I really yeah. can't wait to go and see it again. And I can't wait to see what's next as well, Emma. I'm really excited about that. Thank you so much for your time. So great to chat to you both. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Emma. Such a pleasure. Thank Bye, you lovely. So Bye. Bye. From the score to Mr. Malcolm's list, that is quite the reputation. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with composer Amelia Warner and director Emma Holly-Jones. My huge thanks to Emma and Amelia for joining us. Mr. Malcolm's list is on general release now. So do get along to your local view to see it. I've had the pleasure of chatting to Amelia a couple of times before as well as her lovely husband Jamie Dornan so head to edithbowman.com if you'd like to hear those conversations as well as every single other episode of the podcast. Do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and feel free to send us an email. The address is info at edithbowman.com It could be about anything. Films you've seen and loved suggestions for guests that you want to see on the show but we'd love for you to get in touch info at edithbowman.com next up um i've done this conversation already and i cannot wait to share it with you bit of a legend when it comes to composers and he's featured on this show quite a lot from other people talking about him it would take me hours to run through every film that he's worked on but if i said that he'd done all the music for Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit films, um, Mrs. Doubtfire, Silence of the Lambs, at Seven, all of David Cronenberg, well, mostly all of David Cronenberg's films. Mr. Howard Shore is our guest on next week's episode of Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.